Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. Good morning, good morning. Welcome, welcome to everybody. You guys are looking good this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Pastor Hector. Our lead pastors, George and Suzanne Brantley, are in Arkansas today uh, preparing for um, a battery of tests and doctor's appointments that Pastor George is going to face later this week. Uh, But we are still believing for him. Come on, everybody say amen. We are still believing for the complete healing of God to touch his body. He's actually watching right now, him, Pastor Suzanne, and their good friends that are hosting them, uh, Dr. Udis and Tessa. So why don't you guys say hello to Pastors George and Suzanne and their friends. We are still praying for you, sir, and we're believing for a good report when you get back. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for coming. I am always thankful for the opportunity to open up God's word and share it with you. It is actually one of the most enjoyable things that I get to do. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to go ahead and encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Go ahead and put your finger there. We're going to use this text to springboard into another later on during our time together. But in Matthew 24, I want to give you some context. Uh, A few weeks back, I was uh, studying Matthew 24, and I was struck. I was struck by certain words that Jesus said, and it led into a study that has been a complete blessing to me, and my hope today is that it's a blessing to you too. So some context for Matthew 24. Matthew 24, uh, this is the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. Um, He is in Jerusalem. Actually, he's technically walking out of the city of Jerusalem, headed over to the Mount of Olives, where he will begin his fifth and final major discourse recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've ever read chapter 24 and 25, so that's two whole chapters of Jesus just talking, and it is absolutely powerful stuff in there. And he talks about end time stuff, prophetic stuff. But right in the beginning of Matthew 24, he highlights something for the disciples and something for you and I today. And I want to begin by reading uh, Matthew 24. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pause right there and pray, right? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we say thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, we choose right now to position our hearts and our minds and our spirit to receive something from you. Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word today and help us to walk out of here different. So we honor you and we bless you for your word right now in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Listen, fam, I want to encourage you. Okay, I want to encourage you to position yourself, to posture yourself, to receive something from the Word of God today. Truthfully, this does not have to be a regular Sunday for you. This could be a pivotal Sunday for you. The Bible says in Psalm 119 that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The Word illuminates things for us. 
It illuminates things about us. It illuminates things about God. It gives us direction in life. So I want to encourage you. Lean in. Let's extract and withdraw something from the word today. Yes? Amen. All right. So picking up in Matthew 24, verse 9. Again, Jesus is highlighting this suffering that his disciples will experience here in verse 9. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. And those last words there in verse 12 are the ones that struck me. They struck me. They gave me pause as I read through them. Now, I want to say a few things before we keep going. If you and I were to have a five to ten minute conversation, all right, let's be honest, 15, I'm kind of wordy. If we, were have, if we were going to have a conversation about faith and theology, you will quickly come into the understanding that I am a big sovereignty guy. I believe that God is good and he is sovereign over all things and he is executing his perfect will. And God is so good that I also believe what Hebrews chapter 12 says, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of my faith. I believe that God lovingly convicts me when I sin, and then he graces me with what I need to get up and repent and walk out my transformation, to enjoy the forgiveness that God is giving me. This is the journey of sanctification that God makes available to every believer. So we are being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. God is good, and he is sovereignly watching over every moment. And with that said, there is also a role, or a part, I should say, for you and I to play. There's a role that requires of us, and we know this because God gave us free will, which means that we are not robots that God flicks a switch on the top of our backs, and then we go into this automatic mode of producing glory for God. That's not how it works. God actually requires something of us. So here's a point. If you're taking note, write this down. Our participation in his invitation checks the temperature of our love for him. Our participation in his, in his invitation checks the temperature of our love for him. You see, God is also so good and he's sovereign and yet there's a role for us to play. God is so good that he's actually helping us with our part. You need to know that God is helping us with our part. That's how much he loves us. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, hey, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little bit weird, right? It actually reminds me of a, 
of a Kevin Costner movie where he was like this middle-aged cowboy. He was a decent guy or whatnot. He drove cattle. And uh, uh, anyways, there's a conflict in the movie, and the conflict gets resolved. But along the way, he meets this kind of uh, feisty, independent doctor lady. And uh, ultimately, they awkwardly build this romantic relationship. And then at the very end of the movie, and I, if I'm not mistaken, it was a really long movie. Uh, at the very end of the movie, they're both on horseback. And, um, you know, she kind of in this flirty, playful way uh, kind of defies an instruction that he gives her. He said something to the effect of like, you know, stay behind me on horseback, you know, just in case there's danger we're going to face as we ride off into this prairie or whatnot. And she like flirtatiously and in a really cute way kind of defies him and she just rides off. And then Kevin Costner says, he's just sitting there in his saddle with his befuddled face. And he says, hey, how's this marriage thing going to work if you don't do what I say? But hear me, hear me, hear me. Jesus, Jesus in saying, if you love me, obey my commandments, what's necessary to understand what he's saying is that you got to know who's saying those words. You got to know who's speaking those words. You got to know that it's Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? The second member of the Trinity who is good and God being good only speaks good things. And if he only speaks good things, then therefore he is trustworthy. And if he is trustworthy, you can obey and show forth your love. You can't have love without trust. You cannot have love without a foundation of trust. And God is so good, right, in helping us in our part, in the, in the role that we play, um, that he gives us imperatives all throughout the scriptures. Those are commands or charges to heed his word. Here, I'm just going to rattle off a, a few of them for you. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, do not grow weary in well-doing. That's powerful. That's super helpful. God is giving us an instruction that produces life in us. You know what else is on the table? You can completely ignore it. You can grow weary in well-doing if you want. It's up to you. Here's another one. Joshua 1, 9. Be strong and courageous. So good. If you don't like it, you can be weak and cowardly. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Or don't trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isaiah 41, 10, do not be afraid. That is so relevant in our current day. Or you can just sit back and be a scaredy cat. How about Matthew 28, 19? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Super rewarding, not only for them, but also for you. And if you don't want to heed that instruction or heed that word, then you can sit on your couch and make your own double stuff Oreos. I don't know. You have to see that our relationship with God is a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. There is a responsibility that falls to us as believers because God is a father who invites us to journey with him. He's not a tyrant who forces us to journey with him. Amen? So back to these words in verse 12. 
the love of many will grow cold. Many? How many is many? I mean, we can at least agree that many is more than few. I started to think, many. Man, can, can this happen to me? Can this happen to you? Listen, I'm a family man. What does love growing cold look like? What does love growing cold look like? And this is the point where Holy Spirit brought me to this awareness. Write this down. We live in a world that is satisfied with a vagueness about Christ. We live in a world that is satisfied with the vagueness about Christ. There's just this satisfaction and contentment in knowing what little they know about Jesus. They're like, oh, uh, yeah, Jesus? Yeah, um, that's the baby in the manger at Christmas time, something like that, right? Uh, the cross around Easter. Yeah, that's a cool dude. Hey, by the way, did you catch that new series on Netflix? They're just okay with knowing what little they know about Jesus. And hear me, church, this is pervasive throughout our culture, and it also permeates the church. And so my prayer throughout my entire preparation for today was this one thing. Lord, stir in us, stir in us a fresh and holy discontentment with that vagueness. Let us be stirred to hunger and thirst for more of God. Because there is more of God to be had. You got to stretch your belief. You got to know that's true. And so, what do we do? Thankfully, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus didn't stop talking. He kept going. In verse 13, he says this. But the one who endures, there's the operative word, to the one who endures to the end will be saved. And now God's people said, amen. So, what does endurance look like? I actually believe that endurance looks like a number of things, but I believe that one key ingredient to endurance is admiration. Admiration. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Come on, PH. That's a little simple and, you know, narrow. I admire God. I admire his kindness. I admire his goodness. I admire his mercy in my life. Come on, Pastor Hector. I admire God. And listen, that is good and true and right. And if you talk like that, even better. But what I want to show you today 
is that there is a depth and complexity to God that allows us to have greater admiration for him. You see, I believe that the depths of God, when we tap into it, it can catapult us, catapult us into greater admiration for God. See, I believe every single person sitting in here, those watching online, those who will listen to this later on in the week, I believe that you can tap into a deeper and utterly fascinating and mind-boggling, profoundly wonderful admiration for our infinite God because there's more admiration for you and I to have. I believe that. And so... To capture a snippet of that admiration, I hope to do so by illustrating a greater admiration for God through paradoxes. So if you're just tuning in, the title of my message is Paradoxical Jesus. <laughs> Paradoxical Jesus. It's a lot of syllables, but I'm a wordy guy. All right, but to get on the same page, yes? To get on the same page, let's define paradox. So the definition of paradox is this. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may well prove to be well-founded and true. I'll say it again. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. You see, there's this thing about paradoxes. They're naturally intriguing, right? They pique our interest. Because in the complexity of the statement, it shows forth a balance or a truth that means something to us. And because it means something to us through that complexity, our admiration for that paradox rises and makes that paradox memorable. You guys with me? All right, well, let's let's look at a couple of examples of paradoxes. First up, less is more. At first glance, you're like, hey, what happened here, man? We, we talk in English still, right? Yeah. What, 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 what this? Uh-uh. Less is more. What? Come on, man. But when you pause and you give it some time to sink in, you start to realize that this paradox is actually revealing a really powerful truth to us. And it makes sense, especially when you apply it in certain situations. How about like uh, your teenager's room? Totally appropriate. How about your wife's closet? Don't say it. Don't do it. Don't do it. How about your husband's garage? Or that friend who has all the words about all the people and all the things, and you're like, "Mm -hmm." less is more. That is a fun paradox. Let's do another one. Do the thing you think you cannot do. What? Come again? You're speaking backwards. I don't understand what you're saying. 
But when you give this paradox pause, you start to see that it's actually motivational. It's inspirational. It's totally applicable in sports or in business or in anything that you're trying to achieve because it's instructing you and showing you the truth that all you got to do is break through that mental barrier. That's a fun paradox too. And not surprisingly enough, that, this paradox idea, is nowhere better realized than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paradox. Paradoxical Jesus. So since paradoxes can be a little bit strange, we're going to pop over to a strange book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 5. If you have your smart device, you can follow us on version Bible app. So let me provide you with some context here first for what is taking place in Revelation chapter 5. So for starters, the book of Revelation was recorded, recorded by John the Beloved, one of Jesus' original disciples. Okay? He's the only one that lived into his old age, uh, even though he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island. And most theologians are agreed that John recorded the book of Revelation in the mid-90s A.D. So this is a good 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So John, while he's worshiping in the Spirit, he has this revelation. Jesus speaks to him these letters for these churches. And then Jesus says, go through that door in heaven. So in other words, go into this Heaven, heavenly, heavenly's place. And where he lands is the innermost place in all the cosmos. And so we pick up in verse 5 to hear this revelation that John recorded. And you know, what's important to note is that the recording of this book, it's really a prophetic revelation a prophetic revelation of future histories that have already been in a time that we have not yet seen. Okay, it unveils this unseen spiritual war that the church is engaged in. And on one side is God and his Christ, and on the other side is Satan and his evil allies, both human and demonic, by the way. So if you don't know, in the end, God wins. Come on, everybody say amen to that. God wins. God wins. And it wasn't even a contest, let's be honest. It wasn't even a contest. But God wins, and we are blessed because of it. So let's read here what John saw as he went, in, as he went through that door in heaven. It says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth 
was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Come on. What a sight. What a privilege John the Revelator had to see what he saw. Such a magnificent sight. There's so much imagery here. There's so many lessons that we can extract. But I want to make three quick observations to scaffold us up to greater admiration for the paradoxical Jesus that we see here in this text. First up, God is in control. God is in control. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Just so that you know, seven, biblically, is the number of perfection, the number of completion, the number of fullness. And in addition to that, it says that the scroll was written on the inside and on the outside. You know what that says to me? That it's complete. That there's no more room on the margins 
to add anything else or to take away something. It has been foreordained, these future histories that God holds in this scroll in his right hand are complete. And that is absolutely epic. I cannot think of a more commanding, in control posture than sitting on a throne and holding the scroll that will unleash the judgments of God and bring about the end and the full consummation of his kingdom. There is nothing that says control better than that. God is in control. So hear me, friends. No matter what difficulty you are facing, no matter whether it's marital difficulty, financial difficulty, health difficulty, you have to come to the place where you remind yourself that your God is in control. Next thought. None are worthy to open the scroll. It says this in verse 2 and 3, And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and, on the scroll and open it? But no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And you have to feel the weight of that. You have to feel the weight of what the angel says. No one is worthy to open the scrolls. No one was worthy to, to, no one was found worthy enough to open the scrolls. So you can throw into the proverbial hat any name you can think of. Any super kind person you know, any super generous person that you know, people who are sacrificial, you can scour through the histories of humanity and find the most noblest person you can think of and throw their name into the hat. And guess what? They are categorically inferior to what's needed to open the scroll. Jesus is in a category all onto himself. What's required to open the scroll is perfection. And so that's why God's people rejoice. And you might be asking yourself, well, why doesn't uh, God the Father Almighty, sitting on the throne with the scroll in his hand, why doesn't he pop off those seals and read it himself? And that's a great question. That's a great question. But here, let me tell you, along that thought, Along that line of thinking, you have to know that if God the Father Almighty would do that, he would be unjust and unrighteous in doing so. Here's why. Because that would be akin to him hopping off his throne, popping those things off, decreeing what it says. It's kind of like him basically saying, hey, humanity, hey, all your evil, all your sins, all your wicked wickedness. I was just kidding about all that. Let's just go ahead. <laughs> I love you so much. Let's just go ahead and sweep it under the rug. It's all good. God would be unjust and unrighteous to do such a thing. You see, because when a holy God confronts sinful man, we 
are consumed. Consumed. That's how holy our God is. That's how evil your wickedness and my wickedness is before the Lord. We would be consumed in the presence of a holy God. So God needs a mediator. God needs a mediator. God needs a go-between. Someone to stand in the gap. And that's why we rejoice. We rejoice in the work of Jesus. Because listen to this. Listen to this. Point number three. Without Jesus... There's only weeping. Verse 4. John, after hearing there was no one found worthy enough to open the scroll that ultimately brings about the consummation of the kingdom, he was weeping bitterly. He was sobbing. I began to weep bitterly. So hear me, friend. Without Jesus... There is only weeping. Whether you experience that here and now or then and later. There's only weeping without Jesus. But how many of you praise God that that's not the end of the story? <laughs> Let's go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. Verse 5. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. Before we read the next verse, you have to envision what John is going through. He was weeping bitterly. And when the angel told him, hey, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the, the, lion of the tribe of Judah is here. He had to collect himself, catch his breath, wipe away the tears off of his eyes. He got excited. Yes, someone has been found worthy. Hallelujah. And he clears out his eyes and he looks up and in verse 6, what does he see? Then I saw a lamb. A lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the slaughtered lamb. What a paradox. What a paradox the Lord has chosen to describe himself with. In my mind, there couldn't be two more contradictory animals or creature descriptions that Jesus chose to describe himself with. There's, they're, they're just complete opposites. And the powerful truth that I believe he shows here is that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He is not either or. He is both and. 
the lion, and the lamb. And when you juxtapose these two images next to each other, our admiration for Christ rises. It rises immensely. Watch this. A lion, right? A lion is dominant. It is strong. It's majestic, right? But what makes Jesus an admirable lion is that he is a lamb-like lion. A lamb-like lion. Watch this. In verse 5, it said that, one of the, but one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, if we go down just a little bit further into verse 9, we get a better idea of this worthiness, right, that's associated with the victory of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we go down to verse 9 and we read this. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered. When was the last time you saw a lion slaughtered? Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah won the victory by dying like a lamb. That is why we admire him, we worship him, because he is a lamb-like lion. It was a tactical defeat, totally strategic, kind of like the whale swallowing up Jonah. Death swallowed up Christ. And it thought it had the victory. But Jesus inflicted a mortal wound in the belly of death, and it couldn't keep him. It couldn't contain him. So our Christ rose from the grave, resurrected, and now is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It was a tactical defeat. It was like Samson. If you're familiar with the story of Samson, he was one of the judges in ancient Israel. God gave him strength that was connected to his hair. And the Philistines, they just couldn't beat Samson. He was real, real strong. And he killed a bunch of them because they were enemies of God. But Samson was a horrible judge. But ultimately, they figured out where his source of strength came from. They had someone cut off his hair and now he's weak. They arrested him. They plucked out his eyes. And now he's a prisoner. And they are mocking him and celebrating their demon God in the temple of Dagon. And they're ridiculing him as he is standing there in the midst of all of these Philistines. And he's chained to these two pillars in the center of the temple. And in that last moment, Samson humbles himself and he cries out, Sovereign Lord, this one last time, give me strength. Give me strength to execute your judgment on this wicked people who mock your nation and mock your name. And God granted his prayer. And in one last showing of strength, Samson pushed those pillars 
in the temple of Dagon and killed all the Philistines and himself in that one move. And the Bible says that Samson killed more in his death than he did in his entire life that day. Jesus obliterated death. Jesus conquered it all. Every affliction, depression, anxiety, fear, death, sin, the grave. Jesus conquered it all. How about the lamb? Let's let's take a look at the lamb. A lamb, as we all know, is a docile and lowly and meek creature. Yet what makes Jesus an admirable lamb is that he is a lion-like lamb. What makes Jesus an admirable lamb is that he is a lion-like lamb. Watch this in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing. When was the last time you saw a slaughtered lamb stand? They're usually in a heap. But this lamb is a lion-like lamb, and he was standing. And not only was he standing, he was standing in the innermost place of the cosmos, before the throne of Almighty God, in front of the four living creatures and those 24 elders. This lion-like lamb is fierce. Check this out. In the next chapter over, in verse 15 and 16, it says this, and it's talking about those who ally themselves with Satan. It says, Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains, And the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. That's a fierce lamb right there. That's a lion-like lamb. Evil ones would rather have a mountain fall on them than face the wrath of this lamb. That's powerful. This is a lion-like lamb. And so, church, we can't only admire one revelation of Christ over another. Listen, I love lion imagery. It's strong, it's powerful, it's majestic, it's loud. But you have to know that's not the full picture. Lambs have virtues that are just as important and just as excellent. I like how Jonathan Edwards said it. He said this, he says, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. That was so well said, I thought. A diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus is not merely a lamb and he's not merely a lion. We admire him because Jesus is a lamb-like lion 
and a lion like lamb. And as such, he's worthy of all of our admiration. He's worthy of all of our praise because he is richer and broader and fuller and grander than we can ever think or imagine. This is the God that we serve. Just for fun, here are a few more admirable conjunctions that describe our Christ. We admire Jesus because he possesses infinite glory and lowest humility. None has been more humble than Jesus Christ. We admire Jesus because he possesses infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. We admire Jesus because he possesses uncompromising justice and regal mercy. It's beautiful, beautiful, perfect balance. We admire Jesus because he possesses sovereign dominion clothed in obedient submission. He was obedient onto the cross. We admire Jesus because he has infinite wisdom, yet he is simple enough to relate and welcome the children. Wow. Incredible. This is our God. We admire Jesus because he possesses absolute power with perfect resignation. That's a picture of Calvary. That's a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. Think about it. The one who possesses all absolute power hanging on a tree. And with a whisper, he could have called legions and legions and legions of angels with sword in hand to break out of the invisible realm, come into the visible realm, and decimate Golgotha. But he resigned himself. He did not. For you and for me. This is how admirable our God is. And so hear me, friends. More of what builds our admiration for God. It's right here. I know that I haven't rattled off a bunch of Christian practical ethics for you today. I haven't given you lists of do's and don'ts. I haven't talked about how to make your life better. What I've simply done is point you to this. Because in this, you will find how admirable our Lord and Savior is. There's nothing better. We hold it here in our hands. For me personally, these excellent qualities of my Christ have led me to know and understand that my God is not one-dimensional. And if my God is not one-dimensional, I don't want to be a one-dimensional believer. You know, what's interesting is that what happened prior to the disciples coming to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24 and asking them this profound question of, hey, what uh, sign will signal the, uh, the end of the world and your return? That's what started the Olivet Discourse. That's what started chapters 24 and 25. Well, prior to them asking that question, or the reason that they asked that question, is because at the beginning of 24, they were actually leaving the temple grounds. They were exiting the city of Jerusalem 
they were making their way out of the gate and they were headed up to the slope of the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. But when they were leaving the temple grounds, after Jesus grieved over Jerusalem because it was a city that killed the prophets of God, killed the messengers of God, he was grieved over Jerusalem. But there they were, the disciples walking along with Jesus and the followers, and the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, look at this super cool building in the temple. They're highlighting the glory of these buildings in the temple. And then Jesus said what he famously said, not one stone atop another will remain. Soon and very soon. And so I find it intriguing and very interesting that what kick-started this study was Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple. And then here, through this beautiful journey through his word, we come to realize that we are God's temple. We are the temple of God now. We serve a God who is diverse and excellent. And if God is diverse and excellent and Christ, the hope of glory, dwells in you, what diverse qualities are you showing? Listen, we need strong, dominant, courageous leaders. And at the same time, we need lowly, meek people who serve one another and listen. Are you capable? Are you able to do both? We serve an admirable God of diverse excellencies. Our God is not one-dimensional. And so I hope that you have been encouraged today to know that God desires to reveal himself in greater, deeper, and richer ways to you. My bottom line has been this. Concerning Jesus... The less you're happy to accept, the more you sadly neglect. The less you're happy to accept, the more you sadly neglect. I have invited you this morning to explore the glorious details of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, to find out what it means to you in your life to reject being satisfied with a vagueness about Christ. He is worth so much more. Amen? Hear me, church. Your admiration for God, it will fuel your love. It will fuel your love to such a degree that your love will never grow cold. Amen? It's not going to be easy, right? It's not going to be easy. Narrow is the gate. And broad is the road that leads to? (laughs) That's right. Sorry, I mixed those up. Narrow is the gate. And what did I write here? Difficult. That's the word I was missing. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life. But it's a worthy path, right? It's a worthy path that leads to life. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, we say thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in the ways that you have today. You are admirable, Lord. You are worthy of our praise. We are so grateful, mighty God, 
that you are a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb, that you won the victory by laying your life down for us. We are so grateful that you are worthy. You are worthy to open the scroll and read it and usher in infinite blessings for us. You have made a way for us to enjoy infinite happiness with you. We are so grateful for you, for making a way where there wasn't a way. And I pray over this people today that we would continue our lifelong journey of excavating your wonders and your majesty and your beauty as you reveal it to us through your word. You are insatiable, God. And I pray that we would love you more fiercely than we do. Lord, we don't want to be stuck in a rut. We don't want to say that we got it all figured out. We don't want to come to a place where we know it all. Lord, continue to reveal your splendor to us so that we continue to fall deeper in love with you. Because in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. And so we worship you and we say thank you for today in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said amen. 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 In this uh, atmosphere of prayer, if you don't know the Jesus that I'm talking about, this lion-like lamb and this lamb-like lion, this majestic second member of the Trinity, the Son of God who is worthy of all praise and honor forever and ever and ever and ever, if you don't know this Christ, it would be my privilege to introduce you to him. So with believers praying, I want to invite you. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, simply raise your hand and I will lead you in a prayer. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Bless you. Bless you, sir. Amen. Isn't our God so wonderful that he will leave the 99 to go for the one? I commend you. Your best days are ahead. So, sir, I invite you to repeat this prayer after me, the entire congregation, in a showing of their celebratory hearts for the work that God is doing in you. They're going to repeat this after us. So repeat after me. God, I need you. I am a sinful man in desperate need of your saving grace. I acknowledge that you are God and that Jesus Christ is your son. Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin so that I can enjoy eternal life with you. I thank you, Lord, for who you are in my life, for revealing yourself to me as Savior. I pray now that you would take our relationship and fill it with life for all the days ahead. I trust that you will 
because you're a good God. I say thank you for saving my soul, for bringing me out of death and into life. I worship you now. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, church. Let's give it up for these folks. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.